I clasp the broom with both hands and gaze fondly at Stray. I am too young to love a dog. At the same time, I am beginning to realize there isn't that much to love in this world. This week on Selected Shorts, best friends. At first, I believed that the appearance of love from a dog is only a strategy to win protection. But after a time, we crossed over a line, Cordelia and I. A creature's eyes are on you all the time, or the warm body is next to you. There is an understanding. I'm Cynthia Nixon, and you're listening to Selected Shorts from PRI, the program that brings you great short fiction read live on stage at Symphony Space in New York City. On this program, two stories remind us of how and why, even when people can't be relied on, dogs are our best friends. In Pie Dance by Molly Giles, a divorcee juggles a complicated family menage. I read this story at Radio Love Fest at the Brooklyn Academy of Music's Harvey Theater. I don't know what to do about my husband's new wife. She won't come in. She sits on the front porch and smokes. She won't knock or ring the bell, and the only way I know she's there at all is because the dog points in the living room. The minute I see Stray standing with one paw up and his tail straight out, I say, shh, it's Pauline. (laughs) I stroke his coarse fur and lean on the broom and we wait. We hear the creak of a board, the click of a purse, a cigarette being lit, a sad, tiny cough. At last, I give up and open the door. Pauline? The afternoon light hurts my eyes. Would you like to come in? No, says Pauline. Sometimes she sits on the stoop, picking at the paint. And sometimes she sits on the edge of an empty planter box. Today, she's perched on the railing. She frowns when she sees me and lifts her small chin. She wears the same black velvet jacket she always wears, the same formal silk blouse, the same huge dark glasses. Just passing by, she explains. I nod. Pauline lives 30 miles to the east in the city with Conrad. Passing by would take her one toll bridge, one freeway, and two backcountry roads from their flat. But lies are the least of our problems, Pauline's and mine. So I nod again, bunch my bathrobe a little tighter around my waist, try to cover one bare foot with the other and repeat my invitation. She shakes her head so vigorously the railing lurches. Conrad, she says in her high young voice, expects me. You know how he is. I do. (laughs) Or I did. I'm not sure I know now, but I nod. And she flushes, staring so hard at something right behind me that I turn to and tell Stray, who is still posing in the doorway, to cancel the act and come say hello. Pauline blows cigarette smoke into the wisteria vine and draws her feet close to the railing. 
What kind is it? she asks, looking down. I tell her we don't know. We think he's part Irish setter and part golden retriever. What happened was someone drove him out here to the country and abandoned him, and he howled outside our house until one of the children let him come in. Pauline nods as if this were very interesting and says, Oh, really? But I stop abruptly. I know I am boring. I am growing dull as Mrs. Dixon, Conrad's mother, who goes on and on about her poodle, and who for a time actually sent us birthday cards and Christmas presents signed with a poodle paw print. <laughs> I clasp the broom with both hands and gaze fondly at Stray. I am too young to love a dog. At the same time, I am beginning to realize there isn't that much to love in this world. So when Pauline says, can it do tricks? I try to keep the rush of passion from my eyes. <laughs> I try to keep my voice down. He can dance, I admit. How great, she says, swaying on the railing. Truly great. Yes, I agree. I do not elaborate. I do not tell Pauline that at night when the children are asleep, I often dance with him. <laughs> Nor do I confess that the two of us, Stray and I, have outgrown the waltz and are deeply into reggae. <laughs> Stray is a gay and affable partner willing to learn, delighted to lead. I could boast about him forever, but Pauline, I see, already looks tired. And you, I ask, how have you been? For answer, she coughs, flexing her small hand, so the big gold wedding ring flashes a lot in the sun. She smiles for the first time and makes a great show of pounding her heart as she coughs. She doesn't look well. She's lost weight since the marriage and seems far too pale. Water, I ask, or how about tea? We have peppermint, jasmine, mocha, and lemon. Oh, no! She cries, choking. We've honey. We've cream. Oh, no. But thank you so much. <laughs> After a bit, she stops coughing and resumes smoking, and I realize we both are staring at Stray again. People, Pauline says with a sigh, are so cruel. Don't you think? I do. I think yes. I tell her Stray was half-starved and mangy when we found him. He had been beaten and kicked, but we gave him raw eggs and corn oil for his coat and had his ear sewn up and took him to the vets for all the right shots and look at him now. We continue to look at him now. Stray, glad to be noticed and flattered, immediately trots to the driveway and pees on the wheel of Pauline's new Mustang. <laughs> of course, I complain, he's worse than a child. Pauline bows her head and picks one of Stray's hairs off her black velvet jacket. I guess, she says. She smiles. She really has a very nice smile. It was the first thing I noticed when Conrad introduced us. It's a wide smile, glamorous and trembly like a movie star's. I once dreamt I had to kiss her, and it wasn't bad. I didn't mind. <laughs> In the dream, Conrad held us by the hair with our faces shoved together. 
It was claustrophobic, but not at all disgusting. I remember thinking when I awoke, poor Conrad, he doesn't even know how to punish people, and it's a shame because he wants to so much. <laughs> Later, I noticed that Pauline's lips, when she's not smiling, are exactly like Conrad's, full and loose and purplish, sad. I wonder if when they kiss, they feel they're making a mirror. I would. Whether the rest of Pauline mirrors Conrad is anyone's guess. I have never seen her eyes, of course, because of the dark glasses. Her hair is blonde and so fine that the tips of her ears poke through. She's scarcely taller than one of the children, and it is difficult to think of her as Conrad's executive assistant. She seems a child, dressed up. She favors what the magazines call the layered look, I suspect because she is ashamed of her bottom. She has thin shoulders, but a heavy bottom. Well, I want to tell her, who is not ashamed of their bottom? <laughs> If not their bottom, their thighs, or their breasts, or their wobbly female bellies, who among us is perfect, Pauline? Instead of saying a word of this, of course, I sigh and say, some days... It seems all I do is sweep up after that dog. <laughs> Stray good boy rolls in dry leaves and vomits some grass. <laughs> as if more were needed, as if Stray and I together are conducting an illustrated lecture, I swish the broom several times on the painted porch floor. The straw scrapes my toes. What Pauline doesn't know, because I haven't told her, and because she won't come inside, is that I keep the broom by the front door for show. I keep it to show the Moonies, Mormons, and Jehovah's Witnesses who stop by the house that I've no time to be saved, can't be converted. I use it to lean on when I'm listening, lean on when I'm not. I use it to convince prowlers of my prowess and neighbors of my virtue. I use it for everything, in fact, but cleaning house. <laughs> I feel no need to clean house, and certainly not with a broom. The rooms at my back are stacked to the rafters with dead flowers and song sheets, stuffed bears and bird nests, junk mail and seashells. But to Pauline, perhaps, my house is vast, scoured, and full of light. To Pauline, perhaps, my house is in order. But who knows with Pauline? She gives me her beautiful smile then drops her eyes to my bathrobe hem and gives me a faint, formal frown. She pinches the dog hair between her fingers and tries to wipe it behind a leaf on the yellowing vine. I don't know how you manage, is what she says. She shakes her head. Between the dog, she says, grinding her cigarette out on the railing, and the children... She sits huddled in the wan, freckled sunlight with the dead cigarette curled in the palm of her hand. And after a minute, during which neither of us can think of one more thing to say, she lights up another. It was the children, she says at last, I really wanted to see. They'll be sorry they missed you, I tell her politely. Yes, Pauline says. I'd hoped... Had you but phoned, I add, just as politely, 
dropping my eyes and sweeping my toes. The children are not far away. They said they were going to the end of the lane to pick blackberries for pie, but what they are actually doing is showing their bare bottoms to passing cars <laughs> and screaming, hooey, hooey. <laughs> I know this because little Dixie Stedman, who used to babysit before she got her master's degree in female processes, saw them and called me. Why are you letting your daughters celebrate their femininity in this burlesque? Dixie asked. Her voice was calm and reasonable, and I wanted to answer, but before I could, there was a brisk papery rustle, and she began to read rape statistics to me. And I had to hold the phone at arm's length, and finally I put it to Stray's ear, and even he yawned. <laughs> showing all his large yellow teeth, and then I put the receiver down very gently, and we tiptoed away. What I'm wondering now is what hooey means. I'd ask Pauline, who would be only too glad to look it up for me. Her curiosity and industry made her, Conrad said, an invaluable assistant right from the start. But I'm afraid she'd mention it to Conrad, and that he would start threatening to take the children away. He does that. He can't help it. It's like a nervous tick. He loves to go to court. <laughs> of course, he's a lawyer. He has to. Even so, I think he overdoes it. I never understood the rush to divorce me and marry Pauline. We were fine as we were. But he says my problem is that I have no morals, and perhaps he's right. Perhaps I don't. Both my divorce and Pauline's wedding were executed in court, and I think both by Judge Benson. The marriage couldn't have been statelier than the dissolution, and if I were Pauline, only 24, and getting married for the very first time, I would have been bitter. I would have insisted on white lace, or beige anyway, and candles, and lots of fresh flowers. But Pauline is not one to complain. Perhaps she feels lucky to be married at all. Perhaps she feels lucky to be married to Conrad. Her shoulders always droop a little when she's with him, I've noticed, and she listens to him with her chin tucked in and her wrists poised as if she were waiting to take dictation. Maybe she adores him. But if she does, she must learn not to take him too seriously or treat him as if he matters. He hates that. <laughs> he can't deal with that at all. I should tell her this, but there are some things she'll have to find out for herself. All I tell her is that the girls are gone up the lane picking berries. How wonderful, she says, exhaling. Berries. <laughs> Blackberries, I tell her. They grow wild here. They grow all over. In the city, she says, making an effort, a dinky little carton costs 89 cents. She smiles. Say you needed three cartons to make one pie, she asks me. How much would that cost? I blink, one hand on my bathrobe collar. 267. Her smile deepens, dimples. 267 plus tax when you can buy a whole frozen pie for 156 giving you a savings of 111 at least 
They don't call them convenience foods, Pauline says, for nothing. Are you sure, I asked after a minute, you don't want some tea? Oh, no. Some coffee? Oh, no. A fast glass of wine? She chuckles, cheerful, but will not answer. I scan the sky. It's close, but cloudless. If there were to be a thunderstorm, we often have thunderstorms this time of year, Pauline would have to come in. Or would she? I see her, erect and dripping, defiant. Mrs. Dixon, I offer, had a wonderful recipe for black bear Mrs. Dixon. For a second, I almost see Pauline's eyes. They are small and tired and very angry. Then she tips her head to the sun and the glasses cloud over again. Conrad's mother. Yes, she says. She lights another cigarette, shakes the match out slowly. I know. A wonderful recipe for blackberry cake. She used to say that Conrad never liked pie. I know. Just cake. I know. What I found out, Pauline, is that he likes both. We never eat dessert, Pauline says, her lips small and sad again. It isn't good for us, and we just don't have it. Stray begins to bark and wheel around the garden, and a second later the children appear. Letty first, her blonde hair tangled in brambly like mine, then Alicia, brown-eyed like Conrad, and then Sophie, who looks like no one unless, yes, with her small, proud head, a bit like Pauline. The children are giggling, and they deliberately smash into each other as they zigzag down the driveway. Oops, they cry with elaborate formality. Do forgive me, my mistake. As they come closer, we see that all three are scratched and bloody with berry juice. One holds a mason jar half full, and one has a leaky colander, and one boasts a ruined pocket. Pauline closes her eyes tight behind her dark glasses and holds out her arms. The girls, giggling, jostle toward her. They're wild for Pauline. She tells them stories about kidnappers and lets them use her calculator. (laughs) With each step, the wooden railing rocks and lurches. If these visits keep up, I will have to rebuild the porch, renew the insurance. I carry the berries into the kitchen, rinse them off, and set them out to drain. When I come back outside, Pauline stands alone on the porch. Stains bloom on her blouse and along her thrust-out chin. Come in, I urge, and wash yourself off. She shakes her head very fast and smiles at the floor. No, she says, you see, I have to go. The children are turning handsprings on the lawn, calling, watch me, watch me, 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 as Stray dashes between them, licking their faces. I walk down the driveway to see Pauline off. As I lift my hand to wave, she turns and stares past me toward the house. I turn too, see nothing, no one, only an old wooden homestead covered with yellowing vines, a curtain of flutter in an upstairs window, a red door ajar on a dark brown room.
Thank you, she cries. Then she throws her last cigarette onto the gravel and grinds it out and gets into her car and backs out the driveway and down the street and away. Once she turns the corner, I drop my hand and bite the knuckles hard. Then I look back at the house. Conrad steps out, a towel gripped to his waist. He is scowling, angry, I know, because he spent the last half hour hiding in the shower with the cat litter box and the tortoise. <laughs> he shouts for his shoes. I find them towed out in flight, one in the bedroom, one down the hall. As he hurries to tie them, I tell him a strange thing has happened. It seems I've grown morals. What? Conrad snaps. He combs his hair with his fingers when he can't find my brush. Us, I say. You, me, Pauline. It's a lot of hooey, I tell Conrad. It is. Conrad turns his face this way, that way, scrubs a space clear in the mirror. Do you know what you're saying, he says to the mirror. I think. I think, yes. I know what I'm saying. I'm saying goodbye. I'm saying, go home. And when he is gone and the girls are asleep and the house is night still, I remember the pie. I roll out the rich dough, flute it, and fill it with berries and sugar, lemons and spice. We'll have it for breakfast, the children and I. We'll share it with Stray. Would you like that? I ask him. Stray thumps his tail, but he's not looking at me. His head is cocked. He's listening to something else. I listen too. A faint beat comes from the radio on the kitchen counter. Even before I turn it up, I can tell it's a reggae beat. <laughs> Strong and sassy. I'm not sure I can catch it. Not sure I should try. Still, when Stray bows, I curtsy. And when the song starts, we dance. I'm Cynthia Nixon, and that was my reading of Molly Giles' Pie Dance at Radio Love Fest, produced by the Brooklyn Academy of Music and WNYC. After a short break, A Lonely Man and a Loyal Dog. You're listening to selected shorts recorded live in performance at Symphony Space in New York City and at other venues nationwide from PRI, Public Radio International. Zabars.com is a proud sponsor of Selected Shorts. Zabars.com delivers New York original toasting bagels, coffee, smoked salmon, babka, and more throughout the 50 states, Puerto Rico, and the Virgin Islands. Visit them on the web at zabars.com shorts. Welcome back to Selected Shorts. I'm Cynthia Nixon. For more information about the stories you're hearing, the readers who are reading them, or about the Selected Shorts writing contest, you can go to SelectedShorts.org. And please write and tell us what you think of today's program. 
Our second of two stories about man's best friend is by the author Miley Malloy. Malloy's moved to Paris for this touching story of an aging man and his terrier. René Aubergenois reads Madame Lazarus. Many years ago, after I retired from the bank, James brought a small terrier to our apartment in Paris. I told him I did not want him. I knew he was trying to keep me occupied. (laughs) It is a ridiculous thing to have a dog. Maybe one day you rise from bed and say, I would like to pick up 5,000 pieces of shit. Well, (laughs) then I have just the thing for you. And for a man to have a small dog, (laughs) it makes you a fool. Please, James said, let's just see how it goes. I considered the dog, a blonde female, no bigger than a cat. She had long hair like whiskers over her eyes, so she seemed always to be raising her eyebrows. She sat down as if she knew that would help her case. James is English and wanted to call her Cordelia, not for Leo, but for an English novel. It was not the name I would have chosen, but it was not worth the argument. He did a ringmaster act with some toys, a knot of cloth, a ball, a round bed to show me how good this would be. I had long associated terriers with the barking arts. But this one did not bark. She sniffed at the toys and the bed, waiting for my decision. The next day, James was gone to Brazil or Argentina, leaving me with the dog. He had an import business and was often away. I think Cordelia had already guessed that he was not a sure thing, and she looked at me for our next move. I took her outside to do her business. She was not allowed to go in the impasse where the cars park and the concierge is always watching. So we went out through the gate to the street. We walked around Paris. We went to the Bois de Boulogne. And there, a hawk circled, eyeing Cordelia like a snack. Don't even think about it, I told the hawk. People spoke to me who would not have before, and they wanted to pet Cordelia, who let them. When we arrived home, Desi was there to make lunch, and she cried out and dropped to her knees to rub the ears of the dog. Desi is from Indonesia, very proper, and she had worked for me for many years. But I had never seen such a display. Cordelia licked her face in greeting, and Desi laughed. Then I sat to read the paper, and Cordelia curled herself into my lap. At first, I believed that the appearance of love from a dog is only a strategy to win protection. (laughs) Cordelia chose me because I was the one to feed her and to chase away the hawks and the wolves. But after a time, we crossed over a line, Cordelia and I. We went out each day to chase the pigeons and smell the pits of other dogs on the trees. (laughs) And we came home to read the paper. The look with the eyebrows was sometimes skeptical about my actions and sometimes a question that I understood. 
There were no arguments except silent ones. I do not want to go there on the leash. And these could be easily solved. Her hair needed to be cut, so I found a woman to do it who tied pink ribbons over Cordelia's ears. She hated those ribbons. You could see she was ashamed. I told the groomer no more. (laughs) She is too dignified for this. And if she feels shame, then why not other emotions? A creature's eyes are on you all the time or the warm body is next to you. There is an understanding, and I think this becomes something like love. I am older now than I thought possible. I did not believe I would ever be this ancient person. The doctor says I should have no wine at lunch for my heart, but if you cannot have a little wine with your lunch, there is no life. If you are as old as I am, you believed a German would shoot you in the head before you were old enough to have sex with another human being. Everything beyond that becomes extra. The things people do to live long, drinking so much water, running up and down to ruin your knees, this is what the doctor should warn about. (laughs) James is young far younger than I. When you are the older man, you can be equal for a time. He has youth and beauty, but you have money and experience. You know many people, and you can take him to Portofino, to Biarritz, to Capri. It's an old story. But the years go by, and your doctor is concerned for your heart. Your joints are not so good. You don't want to look in the mirror when you go to take a bath. And the man you love is still young and strong, more or less. He travels a great deal. He is away more often. The dog knew the first time she saw him. He was not the one to rely on. My ex-wife Simone comes for lunch sometimes, and we talk of our sons who are long-grown and have children of their own. One lives in New York, the other in Zurich. They are both in the banking. They know James, of course, but they do not like him. There's no reason they would. They are serious men, and James is not. Their children, my grandchildren, are charmed by him. They consider James an uncle. He is the correct age, and he is willing to play with them in a way adults are not. And Simone accepts him, which in some ways is a remarkable thing. Simone looks as she always did, although she says this is only because I never saw her, not really, but I do. She is an elegant woman, all angles, gold bracelets on thin, tan wrists, and she understands what it is to be old, which is a comfort. After she leaves, Desi clears away the lunch dishes, and I take Cordelia out for a walk. There came a point when I realized that James was in Paris only when there was an important party. Every person has one great gift, and James is unequaled at important parties. He is good-looking, of course, with the well-cut brown hair and the trim body and the bespoke suit. He has a brilliant smile, very warm and interested and sincere, and when he talks to people, they feel special. 
He has many other abilities, but this one above all. They want to do business with him because of his attention. He is never looking over the shoulder to see who else is at the party. Who he is talking to, this person gets everything. But then we go home and the attention goes off like a light. He does not give me the warm and interested smile. He says a thing or two about the party and the French. He speaks like an Englishman, but very well. He looks at his phone, swiping with his thumb. He takes his expensive clothes off carelessly, leaves them on the furniture like a child. He has had money always and good looks and was his mother's darling. He says, Desi will pick up the clothes, although I tell him this is not her job. He says, of course it is. What else is her job? He is careful only with his shoes. He puts them on wooden shoe trees in the closet, then goes into the bathroom and closes the door. I think the first boy I loved two lifetimes ago. He came to my family's house and I ran inside from playing and saw him standing with his mother. He had a light behind his eyes and a crown of silken curls. He was like someone standing in the sun, even in the dim, cool room. I was still very young and it was a shock because it was the first time I knew who I was. He was older than I And he understood also. I could see that. Then came the war and the people fleeing Paris and the Germans in the city. I was sent to England to live with some cousins and I did not know what happened to this boy. He stayed behind. When I discovered him again in a nightclub after the war, he did not like to talk about those years. The beauty that could help him in another time was not so useful during the occupation. The Germans would be happy to kill him or to send him to build their bunkers, which would be the same. And I do not know how he escaped. He said he tried to help the Maquis, but the people he knew did not want him. He did not seem strong or robust. He was not a saboteur. Perhaps he could get information, but they did not trust how he would do it. He was arrested at the end of the war when the Germans were in a panic and they simply left him in a prison with no food. When I saw him in the nightclub, he had the tuberculosis from this prison, but he was still extraordinarily handsome. He seemed very pitiful to me and very desirable. My older brother had his own flat then to be independent, but I still lived in the family house This boy came to visit me when my parents were away. I knew my father would not approve, but it was exciting. I remembered the way the boy had lit up the old carpets, the paintings, the dust floating in the air. One night, the boy and I were eating dinner at one of the long tables in my family house. He was always hungry. When he began to cough, the sound was wet and terrible, and the coughing did not stop. There was blood on the napkin and his face was purple around the eyes and then something went 
very wrong. There was so much blood and he was coughing, dying there on the dining room floor. I didn't know what to do to stop this hemorrhaging. I thought he will open his eyes in a minute. He will smile. He will wipe his mouth and say, no, 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 do do not worry. I am fine. But it did not happen. I, I heard a roaring like the sea in my ears. My hands were shaking. I telephoned the doctor and my brother, and they came. My brother was furious, concerned only with the scandal of this disreputable nightclub boy dying in our family house. You should have put him in a bathtub, he said, for the blood. I stared at him. When was I to carry him upstairs? There would be blood everywhere if I did this. The doctor was kinder, more practical. He asked if there would be semen on the body or inside it. I was shocked by the question, but I said no. It was the truth. He said this would make it easier. He asked me to help carry the boy to his car, and I lifted the shoulders. The doctor took the legs. He weighed so little. The head dropped back, the pale face, the bruised eyes. I could not look. I was filled with horror. The doctor took him away in his car to the morgue and said, I was never to speak of it. Non parlons plus jamais. And you see, still, I find I do not want to say his name. The housekeeper would arrive in the morning, so my brother helped me clean. I moved very slowly, my arms and legs frozen, while my brother gave me orders. I ran cold water on the napkins and towels in the sink for the blood, I knew I could never repay what the doctor had done. I also knew that my brother would now have the moral advantage over me for the rest of my life. That is what I thought with my hands in the cold pink water, feeling sorry for myself when it was the boy I loved who was dead. Within the year, I met Simone. She was very appropriate, with a good family, the most graceful lines in a dress. She was in every way correct, and I must have proposed because there was an engagement, a great announcement. I had never seen my father so happy. My mother was not so sure, but we had no way of discussing this at that time. There was the momentum of the approaching wedding. It was like climbing into an enormous car without brakes. The party, all the people watching, the flowers and the caterers. In front of everyone I knew, I put my grandmother's ring on Simone's elegant hand and made promises that I could not keep. Cordelia sleeps on our bed in the wide gulf between James and me. But she is old now like me, and she gets down and pees on the rug. I go for the bottle of Perrier, the towel. Then she pees in the hall. James is still asleep, so I clean the hall floor and leave the bottle there. I put on my clothes quietly, and I take the dog outside. Cordelia starts to go in the impasse, which she knows is not allowed. The concierge will come out. The neighbors will complain. It will be a whole issue. I speak to Cordelia. I pull on her leash, but she does not want to move. I pull harder. Finally, she follows very slowly. I could pick her up, but she needs to walk just a little. This is important. This is an important thing, not to stop moving. On the pavement outside the gate, 
She stands and seems to think about something far away. Her eyes are cloudy. She does not do a shit. She makes a strange sound and falls over. Her feet go up in the air like a dead dog in a cartoon. Here, I become not so dignified. I fall down on my knees on the pavement and put my hands on Cordelia's chest. I feel no heartbeat, and I try to remember the rules. Two fingers for babies or you break the ribs. Cordelia is about this size. I put my two fingers on her chest and start to push. I think about the heartbeat, how fast. My own heart is pounding in my ears, too fast. But Cordelia is small. Perhaps the rhythm is right. I press down with each loud pulse in my head. People walk around me on the street. I can feel them stare. A few speak. They ask, can they help? Should they call an ambulance? I only feel for the pulse. I think absurdly of the boy coughing and dying on my floor in another time. I could not press on his chest because the blood was coming from his lungs and everything had broken. I did not know what to do. Now I press and press. My knees ache, and I think there is broken glass on the pavement cutting into my skin, but it is only sand and grit. Minutes go by, and more minutes. My arms tremble. I count the times. I push and then stop counting. I wonder if I have broken Cordelia's ribs. Someone told me once that this pressing does not work without the truck machine, the paddles to the heart. I think if I could open the bony chest, I could hold the heart in my hand and squeeze it until it began to beat again. Maybe someone should call an ambulance. But what would the driver say arriving to see me with an old dog? Do they have this service for animals? I have no feeling in my hand. Il est mort. A helpful person says, standing over me, a young man this time. L, I say, the dog has her feet in the air. The world can see she is not a male. Do the young know nothing? But when I look at her, I think he is right. She is dead. Oui, bien, elle est morte. The young man says, and then he is gone. I continue to press. I look at my watch, but I do not know what time we came outside. And then Cordelia coughs. She opens her cloudy eyes. She seems to feel the indignity of her position, and she wriggles until her legs are under her. She coughs again and shakes her head. She raises her eyebrows as if to say, how ridiculous we are sitting in the street. What am I thinking to make her so foolish? I struggle to my feet and pick her up, ignoring the people who stare. I carry her into the impasse. I can feel her heart beating against my arm. We take the tiny elevator. I have no strength for the stairs. In the faded bronze mirror, I have never looked so old. In the apartment, James is awake, holding the Perrier bottle in a white cotton dressing gown that Desi has ironed. He rubs his face, runs his fingers in his hair. I didn't know where you were, he says. Outside. My voice is hoarse. Another accident? The green bottle is bright against the white cotton. The dog is killing me, I say, and I hand Cordelia into his arms. She was dead. Now she's not. Dead, he says. But I have no explaining left in me. 
My legs will not hold me up. I'm going to bed. I go into the bedroom, take off my clothes, step around the pit on the rug, and climb beneath the covers. Then I hear a scratching at the door, which opens, and small footsteps. Cordelia climbs the little carpeted steps at the end of the bed, which James bought when she couldn't jump up anymore. There is still tenderness, and I feel the small body curl beside me. We sleep. James calls the vet, and we take the dog together. The vet says Cordelia is mostly blind and deaf and demented, but she wags her tail, she eats some food, she puts on a good show for the vet. <laughs> James asks the doctor in many different ways if Cordelia's quality of life is not diminished. This is a code, a hint. He wants the vet to say, maybe it is time to kill the dog. I find this more upsetting than I should. But the vet is cheerful and will not say the words. He pretends not to understand. He calls the dog Madame Lazarus and says it is a miracle she has returned from the dead. Cordelia licks my hand as we drive home. A steady, appreciative lick. She knows. The next morning, James leaves again for Amsterdam, Dubai, I don't know. Somewhere is a schedule. Desi comes to clean and make lunch, and I tell her what happened. We study the dog together. Cordelia wags her tail at us. She eats. But she cannot turn her head to the right anymore, only to the left. She turns her whole body in a circle when she wants to look right. <laughs> No one asks how Lazarus felt after he came out of the tomb. Maybe it was not so good. Maybe he fell over and died again as soon as the people were not watching. Desi goes to work on the spot on the rug, and I think of the morning after the doctor took the boy away when the housekeeper found that I had washed some napkins and towels. She was French her gray hair in a tight knot. It was not normal for me to wash anything. She frowned down at the place where the carpet was wet and a little pink, and I told her I had spilled the soup. She looked at me in the steady way of a maîtresse in school, and then she went back to her work and said nothing. Sometimes Cordelia takes her small steps into an empty room and stands there staring I follow to see what she sees, the furniture, the pictures on the walls. But can she see them? She is listening, maybe for James's voice. She stands there a long time, waiting for something that does not come. I begin to carry her up and down the stairs and out to the street. Sometimes after pissing on the rug, she cannot do it outside. I know this feeling. So I squeeze her to help her while people pass by. A river comes out. I carry her a bit so she can smell the air, and I think, my God, what comes next? What comes next is a morning three months later when Cordelia does not get out of bed. I carry her to the street, but she cannot stand up. She does not wag her tail. She does not eat. I call James on his mobile in some other country, he sounds busy at first, but then he is listening, 
paying attention. The tenderness is there. He says, Cherie, maybe it's time. I wait for Desi to arrive. We speak English together because she does not speak so much French after so many years, enough to shop and to eat. She lives with other Indonesians. It is not necessary. Come with me to the vet, I say. Desi's eyes slide away from me, and I see she does not want to go, but then she collects her bag. I carry Cordelia, and we find a taxi. I cannot drive and hold the dog also, and Desi does not drive. The taxi driver talks on his mobile. The radio is low, all in Arabic. Desi sits with her hands folded on her bag. Cordelia is very still in my lap. I think about seeing that boy the first time when I was only a child before everything happened. The crown of hair, the dazzling eyes, the bolt of understanding. Non, parlons plus jamais. At the vet's office, I ask Desi to come to the back with me, but she shakes her head. She will wait. The vet greets Cordelia, cheerful as before. Madame Lazarus, he says, but I do not want more jokes. I put her on the table. The doctor examines her. I press my hands together to stop the shaking. I feel a skip in my heart and think of the wine I will have at lunch. Ah, Cordelia, the doctor says, stroking her. Tu n'es pas immortel après tout. Cordelia looks for the source of the touch with her cloudy eyes. The doctor says it might be time. He says all the lines James suggested to him before about the diminishing quality of life. I ask him to wait a moment. I go out to the waiting room where Desi is sitting with a girl with purple hair and a small diamond in her nose. A big sheepdog lies at the girl's feet. It lifts its heavy head to look at me to see if I am a threat. Desi, I say, the vet says it's time. Will you come in? Desi shakes her head, tears in her eyes. I can't, she whispers. I can't see it. Don't make her, the purple-haired girl says. She has a German accent. It's terrible. I was here two months ago with my old dog, and I cried for a week after. I look at the German girl whose business it is not. <laughs> she is strong, a little heavy in the hips. I am the age of her grandfather. I do not want to talk about her dog killed in this doctor's office. I turn back to Desi. Please come in, I say. But Desi says no. She has cooked my food, cleaned my house, picked up after James for so many years I cannot count. Her job is to do as I ask, but she will not do this. I can't, she says, and she is pleading. So I go back alone to the room where Cordelia is on the table. Her eyes look at nothing. James was right to bring her home, to give me something to take care of. You look terrible, the vet tells me. Sit down. The nurse brings me a glass of water and says something comforting. I think of James, our long life together, his shoe trees in the closet, his clothes on the floor. The dog is the last string to tie me to him. And now, snip. Soon, 
I will start walking into the bedroom, staring at nothing, listening for voices that are not there. It's your decision, the vet says. I nod. You can hold her, the nurse says, and she puts Cordelia into my arms. Then she puts a pad on my leg like a diaper beneath the dog, and I think, this will be bad. Cordelia sniffs my hand, licks it once. I am no longer sure about the quality of her life. She can still smell the world. She can still love. But then I remember the morning, her legs not holding her up. I wish for a wild moment that I had brought Simone with me, my loyal wife, but she has never liked dogs, allergique. The doctor is working. He ties a tourniquet on Cordelia's leg, and then he prepares a needle. I think he will miss. He will jab it in my arm, but he doesn't. He slips it into her thin leg where I can't imagine there is a vein. Cordelia looks around the room for something We have to wait some minutes for the tranquilizer to work. I feel her pulse in her throat, and I think again that this is a mistake. Three months ago, I got on my knees to push blood through this small body, and now I am letting the doctor kill her. She closes her eyes, and I think I will tell him this is wrong. But he is already there with another needle, another injection. Cordelia flinches. She makes a little sigh. Then her head sinks and her chin is on my hand, her throat soft. The white pad on my leg becomes heavy. She has gone in the wrong place one more time. The doctor takes her from me, and the nurse puts her hand on my shoulder. Out in the waiting room, the German girl has her arm around Desi, and the two of them are crying. The sheepdog's head is on the girl's knee, Desi looks at me, her eyes wet and swollen, and I wonder for the first time if Cordelia will be the last string for Desi also. She could find a new job and start again. She might find children to care for, to delight her, as Cordelia did. It would be more interesting than an old man. I reach into my pocket for my wallet, but the receptionist shakes her head, makes a little gesture of sympathy. This is something, at least... They do not make you pay. If we lived in the country, we could wrap Cordelia in a blanket and bury her, but we have nowhere. So we leave her with the vet. My arms feel empty. Outside, we wait for a taxi. I see an old man walking down the street, bent almost in half, even older than I. He would have been a young man during the war, but old enough to fight or to work or to run. I think I need something to carry. My mind is confused. I have just killed my dog. A taxi pulls up to the curb. I turn to Desi, who is blowing her nose, looking at something in the street. Her black hair has some gray now. I never see her outside in the sunlight. Her bag, bright yellow, hangs on her arm. Don't leave me, I say. Desi looks up surprised. Her eyes are red. The taxi is waiting, impatient. I think I will say everything now.
I will speak of everything. There is not so much time. Please, don't leave me, I say. René Auberginois performed Madame Lazarus by Miley Malloy at the Getty Center in Los Angeles. I'm Cynthia Nixon. Thanks for joining me for Selected Shorts. Selected Shorts is produced by Jennifer Brennan. Our radio producer is Sarah Montague. The readings are recorded by Miles B. Smith. Our programs presented at the Getty Center in Los Angeles are recorded by Phil Richards. Our hosts are recorded with the generous support of CUNY at the City University of New York radio station with sound engineering by Sarah Fishman. Our mix engineer is Joe Plord. Our theme music is David Peterson's That's the Deal, performed by the Deerdorf Peterson Group. Support for Selected Shorts is provided by Houghton Mifflin Harcourt, Publishers of the Best American Short Stories, edited in 2015 by T.C. Boyle. Additional support is provided by the Dungannon Foundation, sponsor of the Ray Award for the Short Story, the Henry Mias Foundation, the Howard Gilman Foundation, Seedlings Foundation, and the National Endowment for the Arts. Zabars.com is a proud sponsor of Selected Shorts. Zabars.com delivers New York original toasting bagels, coffee, smoked salmon, babka, and more throughout the 50 states, Puerto Rico, and the Virgin Islands. Visit them on the web at zabars.com shorts. Additional support for this program comes from this station and public radio international stations nationwide and from the PRI Program Fund. Selected Shorts is produced by Symphony Space and is distributed nationwide by PRI. Public Radio International. PRI Public Radio International.